Hello and welcome to Making UX Work. I am Joe Natoli. Our focus here is on folks like you doing the tough, often unglamorous work of UX in the real world. My guests share their struggles, their successes, and their journey to and through the trenches of product design, development, and of course, user experience. Before we get into it, I'd like to give a quick shout out to our sponsor, Stash Studio, a streetwear clothing brand focused on quality products with a positive message, inspired by the resilience to turn a negative situation into a positive outcome, something obviously very close to my heart for those of you that know me. The Stash mantra is that even in the darkest times, there is a light revealing prosperity. Find your light, let it guide you through the darkness. Visit stash.studio to check out their incredibly well-designed products and learn more. My guest today is Rich Harrison. Rich has 15 years of design leadership experience, serving in multiple roles from UX lead to team leader to senior designer. He's worked for a wide range of organizations from higher education, Fortune 500 companies, government, nonprofits, startups, and small businesses. Rich is also a UXPA Minnesota board member and UX mentor, as well as serving on the advisory board for the Technical Communication Program at Metropolitan State University in St. Paul, Minnesota. Rich's core philosophy is that design is service work. And as our time together made very clear, he firmly believes that we are all very much in this together. Here's my conversation with Rich Harrison on Making UX Work. So, Rich, how are you? I'm doing really well. How are you, Joe? <laughs> Pretty good. <laughs> um, we're, we're both sort of chuckling here because this is round two. We tried this once already, and uh, due to wonderful advances or regressions, <laughs> I suppose, in technology, uh, we lost about half of the original interview. Kind of makes everything more complicated. So yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you know, we take this for granted. I, I, you know, the software I was using previously, I used it for two years, two years plus without incident. And you just sort of take it for granted that, that nothing's going to go wrong. And yet, you know, there it is. When things break, it's especially embarrassing. It's like, oh, I don't know why we can't make this thing project, but we're sure going to design something amazing for you. Yeah, and I'll tell you, honestly, I, I feel bad for these folks right now because they've been very, they've been great throughout the whole thing, you know, and, and I can tell in the conversations, I think they're a relatively small provider. And this year in particular, I think there was a tremendous amount of growth and expansion and people signing up, and I don't think their infrastructure was ready for it. <laughs> So now it's kind of like, oh my God, what do we do? Like our, our dreams came true, now what? <laughs> right. That experience and you see all these things kind of showing up. So yeah, I get it. And yeah, exactly. It's good, to, it's good to talk again. We'll do round two. Yeah, no problem. No problem, no problem. So the, the last time you and I talked... You had told me that you've been on sabbatical for a while. Is that right? Yes. Um, spent a lot of that time in academia at a university and uh, worked in various industries, 
kind of running the, the gamut really from nonprofit to financial services and was ready for something new. And I remember being at the university, being so envious of faculty who took sabbatical. And I thought, well, why can't we all do that? Like, why can't I benefit from that? And yeah. so I packed a little savings away, um, which is really more of a rainy day fund. And I thought, you know, I think I could probably handle this. And I took three months off. I did a little bit of light traveling. Um, yeah, I helped my family out with some different things. Uh, got back to my portfolio and, you know, worked on those pesky case studies <laughs> kind of getting getting my life in order. And one added benefit other than the rest and restoration was just being able to synthesize all of my work. You know, I have this folder of pictures that I've taken over the years, like every time we've been in a working session or, or done a whiteboard session and going back and looking at that with different eyes, because I've got I can believe that. Moments was like, oh, it takes you right back there. And um, I, I try to include that too as, I, as I'm writing. I'm still working on that. But as I'm writing through my case studies, I want to make sure I'm, I'm honest and forthright that, you know, some of this work is, um, is tough. Yeah, it is. And did anything surprise you about seeing that? And I guess, to be honest, I'm, I'm really asking a very specific question, and that is, did the volume or scope or breadth um, or any other aspects of, you know, just how much you've done or, or I don't know, the, the type of work, like I said, the scope of it, did any of that surprise you in any way? Oh, that's an awesome question. It, it not only surprised me, it, it, it took me aback, I guess, to not just the volume of the work, but where my head was at and the way I was solving problems and how hard I was working. I think those of us that are conscientious about what we do, I guess it comes with the territory that we're really hard on ourselves and we all <laughs> deal with different levels of imposter yeah. syndrome. I don't know what happens. I, I will tell you over the years as I've become more experienced, I've become less confident. And recently in the last year or two, I've worked hard to get my confidence back up. I don't know why that is. Some people say your world just gets substantially bigger and you understand all the things that can go wrong. But yeah, I, I think... I think I was doing a lot better than I thought I was at the time. That was a big finding. And mm -hmm. I produced a lot more than I thought because some of these like early insecurities as a young designer, like, oh, I don't know how to, you know, I'm not a um, blank screen designer. I don't know how to just sit down and concept and come up with something on the fly. And then here I'm looking at my work and that's exactly what I was doing. Not that it was <laughs> stellar work right out of the, the gate. You know, it took some time to work through it, but the process really does work and it, it helped me to trust that a little bit more and allow those first iterations to be, you know, a little sketchy, right? That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I totally get that. And I've, I've had similar experiences every once in a while. Um, when I look back at, at older things, like you said, your, your understanding of that headspace now <laughs> is very different than it was at the time. You know, for not necessarily better or worse, but in, in very different ways. You know, you see things in a way, I think, with age and time that you didn't or weren't able to see it while it was happening. You know, another thing that, that stuck out to me was, and it, it comes from a quote that I heard recently, and forgive me because I don't remember where I heard it, but it's letting the silence do the heavy lifting, which I just think is a great way to, and sort of comes with maturity when you're in a, a working session with a group of people, it can be really intimidating. You know, you're up at the whiteboard, you're expected to deliver 
or maybe you're you're presenting a deck yeah and there's just this awkward moment and let it do the work for you you know there's no need i guess that's what's changed a little bit now is i don't feel the need to scribble something out and fill the space as much yeah and i think that's accurate when you're when you're younger in particular you definitely have a need to fill that silence with your own voice because it's it's partly out of insecurity, right? It's awkward, and you're going, okay, that that voice in your head is going, am I doing this right? Is this going okay? Am I screwing this up? Um, what's they're not responding? Why aren't they, why aren't they responding? Why aren't they saying anything? And that's a that's a true piece of advice. I heard the same thing years ago, uh, many years ago, from a consultant who had come into the company I was working for at the time, and that's what he said about asking difficult questions. He said, ask the question and let it lie. Let the silence do the heavy lifting. Same kind of thing. And um, that was a revelation to me at the time, but I think it took me another 10 years <laughs> before I was able to apply it in any meaningful way. You know? Oh, I hear you. It's, silence is profound. It's really powerful. And it, it has a way of shining a light on everything going on, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think we ascribe, we ascribe a negative connotation to that, and that's not necessarily the case. Yeah, that's that's fair. Um, there's also a lot of creativity, I think, that comes from allowing those empty moments because then, whether it's it's you know if you're sitting down with a user and you're and you're walking through something or you're listening to a stakeholder and trying to understand their problem, they're probably more inclined to ask questions if there's space left open than if you know we keep driving it and keep pushing through our agenda. I I think for a lot of years I was such a completist that I was concerned with like, I got to get through my agenda. I got to get mm. all the way down my checklist. And, yeah. you know, I'm in my usability test. I got to ask all the questions instead of just relaxing into it and saying, you know, the probes and the follow-ups are probably more important than the questions. And it reminds me of something you said, I think in your book, but it might've been in one of your courses about like, if you had one question to ask, it would be, show me how you use this. And then you would just shut up and observe. Yeah, yeah. And you just let the person walk through it because the stuff that comes out isn't anything that you would have ever thought to ask. <laughs> so true. Ever. You know, I mean, the stories tell you people are, are amazing that the, the pretzels that they twist themselves into one way or another when they use things. And a lot of that has nothing to do with the software in front of them. You know, it's a lot of times it's their environment or it's the fact that someone's in their cubicle every five minutes or um, their emails pinging constantly. They're getting called into meetings. I mean, there are a million ancillary things that nobody ever thinks about that are really, really critical to good product design, and we never hear about it. You know, you don't hear about it unless you sort of just let it go, like you said, let it go and just let the, let the silence do the work for you. I love those moments of serendipity. It, it reminds me of um, when we were doing site visits for the county. I did some work with, with human services, and we were visiting people using uh, products. And, you know, anytime I'm doing research, like the thing that I'm always most concerned about is not leading the user. I really want them to direct me. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I've got a set of questions. I'm, I'm, tr I'm keeping a, a, a close eye on my biases and, and seeing how I'm asking and framing things. And, you know, one of the things that surprised me in a, in a positive way was this assumption that peop older, people who are older will use a product in a simpler way or that they're afraid of technology. This particular research completely contradicted that because of the types of users we were talking to um, were highly skilled and they ended up being the power users, right? So it totally flipped mm -hmm. our um, stereotype and how they used the product and how important like those keyboard shortcuts and 
the way they navigated uh, the interface. It, I mean, it was just not what you would have expected. And I think that came out of allowing them to drive the conversation, like you're saying, and show us this is how we solve problems with this product. And you also get to see all the workarounds and hacks. And those really are the greatest design opportunities. Because Amen. if you end up fixing what's already there, you might miss that most of those users don't want it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this, this piece is completely irrelevant. Nobody ever uses that, you know, and, and here's why. Totally, totally agree. I always tell teams to, to look for the workarounds first. Yeah, it's, it's great. It's great fun to see, to want to be wrong. And I think when we talk about, you know, what are the things that, because mentorship is really important to me and that, that's become a part of, of my profession and my life. And partly because I think design is really about service work, but also it's a secret way for me to learn from, from new people. They always have a different perspective. Mm -hmm. And to try to give something back to, you know, wow, if somebody told me this earlier, like the thing about silence or the thing about not leading, it would have surely would have saved me a lot of pain and heartache. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And, and I'm right there with you because one of my favorite parts uh, of just about everything I do, but especially, um, you know, the conferences and the travel and, and things like that, is that the conversations that happen during those trips, you know, when you, like you said, when you meet people and you talk to them, the, the learning experiences are just massive. By the time, you know, if I spend three or four days somewhere, by the time I come home, I feel like my head's going to explode. I bet. Because it, there's just so much in there, you know, and, and, and it's really, really cool how differently people see things, you know, and how, how many ways there are to approach a problem, you know, of any kind or how, how you approach life in general. I just, that variety, I think it's left out in the conversations that we sort of have, let's say online, you know, or, or maybe what gets reflected back to us in articles and videos and books and, and things like that about our profession. I think there's a lot of nuance and variety that somehow gets lost. Yeah, you're reminding me of, uh, I think we got off on a good tangent the first time we talked about those uh, stock photos no. <laughs> that, that show designers yeah. in the, um, you know, they always look like models and they're they're perfectly arranged. <laughs> the, right, the post-it notes are perfectly up there. Uh, post-it notes and the, the whiteboard is beautiful, like they took, you know, an hour to, to craft it. And they're not all like that, but a lot of them really show the sexier side of design. And I guess that's fine to a degree in terms of inspiration, but I would love to see some balance around the messier part. Like turn that camera around and look at the room, look what's going on in the room. Cause a lot of times you'll, you'll find a few people sitting at the table that have a very confused look. Maybe somebody else is irritated because you're <laughs> inadvertently stepping on their toes. Yeah, and those yeah, things yeah. are equally as important. I'd say they're, I'd say they're, Equally, and in some cases, even more important. Definitely. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I mean, the, the, the real work, the real work of that session is happening in what you just described. It's happening in the reactions and the thoughts and the things that are swirling around people's heads as this event goes on. Yeah, let it be messy. It's funny, too, because I try to imagine, like, how do we deliver, how do we mentor people and deliver the, these discoveries in a way that they can hear it. Cause I don't know that I would have heard it early on. I think early on, you know, I was in, I was spending a lot of time in, in Barnes and Noble looking at you know, net magazine or um, communication arts and yeah. trying to be an award-winning designer. And I really thought, and that's fine. I mean, coming into it, I really thought it was about aesthetics. And I reached this point where I realized that 
if it's not functional and usable, the aesthetics are meaningless. Because what happens is people get past, once they get past being impressed, right? Okay, so I see that you're trustworthy, uh, you're a serious brand, I'm impressed, it looks beautiful. They're looking for value, and if they don't see it, they're gone. Yep. And one of the phrases I've used to communicate that is that, think about it this way. No user has ever come into a site and thought, I can't use this. I have no idea what's going on. I don't even know what to do. I'm not even sure if I'm the audience for this, but it looks amazing. So I'm going to bookmark it and come back and look at it just to enjoy how pretty it is. (laughs) That's not a real scenario. (laughs) So... I feel, and this is kind of how my brain works, right? I know it's a little, it's, it's a strange way to think of it, but that's how I taught myself that, well, wait a second. Uh-huh. Yes, it's important. Yes, it has value in terms of, you know, connecting to the brand, but it's only a doorway. And once you're in, it's not enough to sustain you. No, absolutely not. It's thin. It's, it's sort of empty calories, right? It's, it's like, it's like eating a candy bar. I mean, it's, it's great for a minute <laughs> and then your body crashes afterwards and now you're in trouble. By the way, I have to, I have to give a little bit of a caveat. I, I told that to a visual designer that I, I respect and adore. I mean, this guy is amazing. Yeah. And he gave me a, a really uncomfortable look. So wow. I, I, I want everyone to know that um, I really do respect and, and love visual design. It's, it's not about that at all. It's just about things in balance and understanding that all those components work and play well together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you had to break it down, right, and you had to give something up, think about those examples where the design really does suck. But the usability and the usefulness, more importantly, the the utility and usefulness of the product is so good, people tolerate it. That's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, Craigslist is a great example. And I love watching, you know, I've, I read a lot and I, I love reading articles where designers are like, here's why Craigslist is actually a brilliant design. No, it's not. It's just really <laughs> exactly high value. Right. That's why people come back. Yes, you can argue that it's a, it's a metaphor coming out of like, a, you know, a newspaper or it serves a certain uh, niche, that's well enough. But be realistic. I mean, that site can be, visually can be so much stronger. It's just the value is super high. Yeah, and you could do that. You could very easily redesign that site and make it cleaner, not necessarily you know radically change it, but it could be cleaner. I mean, there could be more room <laughs> for some of the text. Um, everything doesn't have to be so completely close together. But keeping, I agree with you, keeping the utility of it, keeping the value in those interactions uh, would be priority number one. Because the minute you lose that, you lose the central value of the thing and how it works and why people like using it. Well, and to, to be fair, I'll pick on myself a little bit. I, a little earlier on in my career, I had a job where I think it was my first big redesign. I think I was given a, a, a website to redesign the homepage for. And I remember... I didn't even get to go to the reveal, but um, one of my one of the other designers, one of the more senior designers on the team, came back and said, "Okay, here, here's what here's what we got," and they love it. They think it looks great, but they don't understand it, and they're not really sure it's appropriate for this audience. So we need to rework it. Well, all I heard was they think it looks great, <laughs> and I was awesome. so proud. <laughs> my work is done here. <laughs> wow. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a learning curve that everyone gets through. And I think it all connects up when you, when you look at the messiness of 
design, working through flows and working through processes and thinking about how a system is going to function and interact with other systems, that's hard work. Of course. And it's messy and it doesn't look great. And that's why it's called a sketch. And that's why, you know, it's we do a lot of that work on a whiteboard so that we can continue to iterate through it. Yeah. And I think the substance part of that is what we're talking about, right? With, you know, with all respect to your visual designer friend, I understand the, I understand the face, right? And I understand the reaction. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but I'm a visual, I started out as a graphic designer myself. I firmly believe in the power of good visual design. But the, the thing that I learned about print design is the same thing that I carry um, through to UI design and UX work. And that is, if the underlying principle, if the underlying appropriateness and relevance from language to making sure that the, the visual cues are appropriate for people, making sure that the mental expectations of what they expect to see based on everything else they've used is there. That stuff is always the same. So you can't have, That's right. you can't do well on the surface only. You have to do well on the surface and in the logic and substance and everything else that lives underneath it. And it's incredible. I mean, part of the, the journey that's been so formative to, to me changing and adapting is how, how much the game has changed and how savvy users are in terms of sniffing things out really yeah. quick. I mean, they're, when we talk about mental models of the, the people that we're designing for, they know good design because they've been at it for a while and they come into, it doesn't really matter. Like I've, I've heard people say that you can't compare us to Amazon and Google. Well, that's what, that's what your customers are doing. That's right. So that, that functionality and at a minimum, that core flow really needs to be smooth. And kind of removing those frictions is, a, I think, a better place to spend energy, at least on the whole, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. And I think a lot of times what people don't hear in those comparisons is they're not hearing what those statements really mean. When, when people say, well, make it like Apple, make it like Google, make it like Amazon. What's really being said there is make it as simple as that. Make it as clear as that. To your, to your term a minute ago, make it as frictionless as that. You know, make it really easy for me to get from point A to point B where I don't have to expend too much thought <laughs> on the way to doing it. And it's really exciting when you get that right. And it's really tough to get that right. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. If it was that easy, everyone would do it. <laughs> That's so right. Yeah. And um, it's one of the things I try to talk about a lot is that the, the work that we do is very deceptive. It, it reminds me of Andre Segovia, who some some people call the father of classical guitar, right? Mm -hmm. I think he said something on the order of, guitar is the easiest instrument to play badly. <laughs> and it was his way of communicating that, yeah, it's a simple <laughs> instrument. And at the time, I don't think it had a lot of respect, yeah. you know, because we're going back a little ways. And it it may not be thought of as a serious instrument. I think it was kind of more of a parlor kind of thing mm -hmm. where you're entertaining people. But if you sit down and take it seriously, it's, a, it's also a very, at least acoustic guitar is a very honest instrument and it will pick up a lot of idiosyncrasies and subtleties where if you're not getting them right and you haven't put in the time, yeah, it's, it's very easy to do it poorly. And I, I feel, the, feel the same way about design. I think design when it's done well, and certainly this is how our customers and, and users think about it, they look at it and they go, well, of course it's that way. 
Because that makes sense. Why would you do it any other way? It looks yeah, yeah, stupidly yeah. obvious, right? Of course, of course. But getting to the stupid obvious is a lot of steps and a lot of uh, interesting challenges. And I think learning to love those challenges. Academia really helped me out that way because I developed more of a scientific mind. I think when I started, I was more emotional and I was more attached to, is this good or not? Sure. As as a indicator of my work. And then over time, I was like, well, if I think like a scientist, I should learn to love to be wrong. I should see being wrong as an opportunity to make something better that I wouldn't have had if I just stumbled into it. Because yeah. the worst thing that can happen is that you get it right and then you don't know how. Yeah, absolutely. You don't know how you wound up there in the first place. You make a series of maybe lucky guesses and you know, you throw a dart at the wall with a blindfold on and you hit the target and you go, well, I'm, I'm amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Until you're not. <laughs> so I, I think falling on your face um, is a wonderful way to learn to appreciate and even love over time the opportunity to, to be wrong and correct. Now, teaching businesses to embrace that, that's another discussion. I, I think for them, I do empathize with their uneasiness around it's an experiment and we're going to test and learn. That feels very, I don't know, kind of precarious from a business perspective. Well, yeah, they're, they're afraid that there are no guardrails, you know. Right. So I think we get around that by pivoting quickly. Uh, you know, we, we learn a few tricks along the way. I think as we get used to design patterns that work and we stuff those away as like, I know fundamentally we're not going to change these core things and I know where to take those risks. And then communicating, like even over communicating, because another lesson that's come from my experience, at least, is that the relationship has to come first. Oh, yeah. And the oh, reason yeah. for that is you're going to fail and you'd rather fail with a friend then fail with somebody who's suspicious of you or, or frustrated with you or, you know, maybe didn't connect with you up front. That's going to be a, a lot tougher. Yeah. And someone who, and someone who trusts you and the relationship part of that, I think is really important because if there's clear, honest, open communication, everybody's on the same page. All right. That's when you're not making promises that are otherworldly or unrealistic or whatever. Everybody goes in with both eyes open, understanding, well, there's a little risk here, but we're going to do everything we can to minimize it. And you can trust me to have your back, right? I'm not going to let anything catastrophic happen that's going to hurt you. So I totally agree with you there. You know, that last thing you said was, was a really tough lesson for me and the way that I framed it so that it could work because I don't, there's a component to our work where we have to get up in front of people and we have to present, whether, yeah. whether we're presenting to a group to, to speak to a deck or we're showing our work and, and defending our design decisions. There's a communication element that feels like you're on a stage, which is interesting because as a, as a musician, I never loved that part of it. I like connecting with music, but I'm not really a performer in the sense that I want a bunch of eyes on me. Interesting. So in order to get over that hurdle and in order to, you know, speaking to what you're saying, comfort them and give them confidence, I was introduced to this concept by one of my mentors a few years ago, which is staple yourself to the problem, right? So your problems are my problems, and yep. I'm looking at this as service work. I'm yep. not up here performing for you. I'm not trying to look cool. I'm not trying to impress you with my knowledge. I'm literally trying to help you, and I'm the guy who just raised my hand and volunteered and said, you know what? I'll do it. I'll go to the front of the room, make a fool of myself if I need to, but we're going to work through this, and 
your success is my success. So we'll, we'll figure it out together. I think that's tremendously important. And it's, it, to me, and you've probably heard this from me before, but as everybody has, because <laughs> I'm like a, the proverbial broken record about just about everything. Um, but I think that's where battles come from. I think that's where this adversarial relationship with clients, with stakeholders, with, you know, designers and developers, UXers and developers, or UXers and product owners and or executives or whoever, I think that's where a lot of these battles come from in that there's more performance happening than there is service, right? There's more, there's more preaching happening than there is actual communication and collaboration, you know, honesty. And again, I'll confess, like, this is not something I learned overnight. This no, took me, me a lot of practice, right? Me either. I, you had, I had to get it wrong for a lot of years. That was a requirement. I had to, to use the, the Rollins quote that I'm fond of. I had to get my nose broken a number of times, before. Yeah, I love that guy. I love that that statement of courage. Like just it's something I wish I could take back to my younger self because I really thought that developing your craft meant you go away in a corner in a quiet place <laughs> and you figure it all out and yeah. then you present it. Yeah. And what's what's funny and a little bit surprising is that a lot of people, at least in my experience, appreciate it more when you show vulnerability and you say, you know what, I'm not really sure, but let's work through it together. Yeah, because it's honest. That sounds like you're not confident, but I've seen the reaction in the room and and people, they respond well to that. They see that like, okay, this guy doesn't know everything. He's not trying to to put one up on me or, or figure it out when he doesn't know, but he's willing to you know go into the trenches and pull his sleeves up and get dirty and figure it out with me. No, I've never once in almost 30 years, I have never once encountered a situation where anyone kicked me out of the room or fired me or even really gave me a hard time for not knowing something, <laughs> you know, in, in the situation that you're describing. It, it just doesn't happen. And I think we have a fear of it happening. I think we have it especially when we're younger and newer, but reality is just, it just doesn't work that way. That's right. You said something a while back the last time we talked that I really took to heart as well. And I thought it was one of the, one of the best things I'd ever heard, to be honest with you. And I wrote it down, <laughs> which is what I do with quotes like that. You said, instead of pushing back, we should be pulling forward. Yes. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, so I came up with this concept when I was, I was working at a company, a group of consultants as an employee and interfacing with a lot of different clients. And I learned a lot, but I watched a lot. I was on a team of close to 40 designers and I watched a lot of them succeeding and failing at different things. And they were amazing. I mean, I felt like at the time, like everyone in here is, is better at their craft than me, right? But when it came to client relations, where I saw them struggling is they were coming on too hot and too strong. Yeah, and really aggressive. So I started paying attention to the language and the semantics and this idea of how we talk in the workplace. And I see it everywhere I go. You know, there's a lot of war and sports analogies, like don't die on that hill or, yeah, you know, yeah, pick yeah. your battles and uh, move the ball yeah. down the field. I use them too, right? I'm not putting myself <laughs> above them. They're stuck in my head. What can I do? But I, I remember there was one day I was so irritated. I must have heard, I'm going to push back 50 times. And I looked at somebody and I said, why don't you try pulling forward? 
because there's a lot of people pushing back. There's articles on pushing back. I don't know that we've ever won by pushing back. All that, that, that act of aggression, the only thing it does is literally push somebody away and cause injury that you have to repair later. Yep. Now, there's, there's a really important caveat to this, and that is that when you're pushing back in a way that's healthy and you're offering critique that's productive and you're saying, okay, I'm going to take the time to empathize with you and see your angle but I need you to see it a little differently so that we can do things in a, in a different way. I realize we're talking about semantics and nuance, but it's important because... No, it matters. It matters. Yeah, your intent going into a session, like if you're, if you're repeating this mantra of I'm going to push back, you're already in a defensive posture. Right, correct. As soon as you walk in the room, you know, we've got thousands of years of, of built in, built into our code DNA to respond to uh, physical communication, body language. Sure, sure. So you walk in the room with this defensive posture. Everyone feels it. They see it on you. As soon as you start presenting, you can almost, I can see it in my mind. You can watch the arms crossing, right? Yeah. They're sitting back in their chair. They're crossing their arms. Closing up. When I see that, I'm I'm pivoting really quick, (laughs) right? It's time to slow down, bring them in, pull them forward. Yeah. And think about the things that you have in common. And I've learned to use a little humor even if it's self-deprecating humor and joy to, to work out of those scenarios too. Like if you come in a little too hot and you've done all this work up front, you've done a lot of great research, you're a great designer, you know what's right, but you've got to get them to where you are. Sometimes you just got to like draw back and find a way to connect with them, you know, break the ice. Well, yeah. And I think it's easy to assume. I I think we, we also do this thing where it's sort of easy to assume that they're where you are. You're on episode six, let's say, in a, in a series, and and they haven't watched episode one yet. <laughs> you know, so the plot and all the twists and turns and all this stuff is natural to you because you've been living with it for a long time, and they're sort of still behind. And if you immediately sort of go charging up that hill, right, or, or like you said, come in and you're defensive and you're spouting all this off as this is the absolute truth and gospel and rah rah rah. All you're doing is you're making that sense of discomfort and that sense of, I don't really understand all this, even worse. You know, you're just intensifying it. That's true. That's true. And I think broken trust, I mean, this goes back to what I said earlier, the reason why I put the relationship first, even if it means I end up backloading my work and I'm not getting, I'm not in my flow and I'm not getting enough done up front. If I'm working on the relationship and I'm building consensus and trust, I know it pays off down the road because once I break it, the path to get to get it back is really long and difficult. Absolutely. Infinitely longer and infinitely harder. No question about that. I mean, it's the same kind of thing. And I understand where it comes from. All right. And you tell me what you think. But to me, a lot of this defensiveness that we have um, as designers, UXers, creative people uh, in general, and I think maybe possibly everybody in every industry falls prey to this to some degree or another, but that defensiveness comes from a place of either being hurt or being afraid to be hurt, right? Or, or it's, it's, right. it's a, a confidence problem. It's fear, you know? And I think that's really what it's about. I'll, I'll give you a, a story. I'll tell on myself again, because I, I think it's, it's useful to hear this. And it, it was probably about mid-career, so I should have known better. 
But I was working, I did about a one-year contract um, for a major retail company. And I worked on this this really high-performing team. I respected everyone. I really kind of admired everyone's talents. And they gave me, um, they took me out to, to dinner, you know, as a, as a kind of going away gift. And the business analyst gave me a card and it was really, it was really nice. It was a nice sentiment. And she was complimenting me on the work that I had done. She's like, well, you, you know, you took this user interface and you did some really innovative things with it and we tested it and it all went well. And I said something really foolish in the moment. I said, well, it wasn't hard because the starting place was so bad. Oh boy. Well, I found out later she designed that. She designed that first iteration. And boy, I tell you, that's a lesson you don't need to learn too many times before you correct it. (laughs) That's right. And I've I've done the same. I felt two inches high. (laughs) Don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. And I've, I've swear to you, I've done the same thing. Um, I've absolutely done the same thing. And you find out, and it was literally that, okay, where I, I made a comment about something and found out that the person I was talking to was the person that designed it. And to their credit, they never said a word to me. You know, didn't change their facial expression, didn't hold it against me. They weren't silent or rude or anything else <laughs> after that. But uh, man, did I feel bad about that for a very long time. And that brings up a good point. It, that I mean, in that case, I, I remember she said something like, oh, thanks a lot, and kind of let me know right away. And of course, I felt ridiculous. But in many cases, people won't let you know, and that's worse because yeah. then you don't you don't have an opportunity to to correct it. So, yeah. I think you know I have this principle called do no harm design, which is take what they have, and and respect it, even if it's hideous. Agreed. Give respect to it because you have no idea how they got there, how many constraints they're navigating. Nobody wants a crappy design. I totally agree with that. And and again, like I kind of said before, I understand the reaction. Uh, the reactionary nature of such things, especially when when they're sort of um, high stakes. You know, I, I, I saw something earlier, wasn't this week, it was actually last week, about these um, touchscreen voting systems, you know, where people were sort of being disenfranchised because the, there was a button called more and another one called next, and they were right next to each other on the screen. Bottom line is there were more um, candidates and more selections to vote on that were further on down on the screen, but you had to hit the more button in order to get to them. Okay. But it, it was designed, the thing was designed poorly. All right. And it really was kind of an amateur hour mistake. Like no conscious designer would have ever made the decision that, in the prototype that I saw. And what was happening was people were hitting next and it's taken them to the end and they missed, you know, like 75% oh. <laughs> of what was, of what was there. So I understand the righteous anger because I had it myself. I felt like this is an election, okay? This is not some, you know, you're not voting for your favorite sports team or something. There's, there's sort of a lot at stake here, right? right? Particularly in the, in the climate of this country right now, but that's another story. Um, and I felt like, you know, you got to take this more seriously. You got to do your due diligence. And at the same time afterwards, the longer I thought about it, I felt like, you know, I, I guarantee you this is one of these situations because one guy from the Board of Elections came back to me and said, well, facts matter. You know, you need to know that these people from IDEO and, and some other names who people I respect um, were consulted for this. And I don't doubt that. But I also don't doubt that what happened is whoever was responsible for actually designing that interface and getting it out and shipping it probably had 10 seconds to put it all together. Right. Right. right, or there was some other some other constraint where they were probably not 
really allowed or were working under extreme duress to make something happen. I don't doubt that for a minute. But that's easy to forget in the moment, you know, when you're reacting to something. You know, this reminds me of a, a story where I had back-to-back clients. And the first client, same type of project, same type of work. We were given three months, a full design team, and I was leading that effort. The next client, out of state, we had two weeks, <laughs> and I was alone. And I was literally looking at the account executive it was all I could do to not laugh and say, are you serious? Yeah. But they were dead serious. I mean, that the life of, of a designer, I mean, look, every everyone, every designer has delivered garbage. Sure. And I think that's the, the first thing that I can par- impart to anyone who's who's coming out to do this work. If, if you're not comfortable delivering something that embarrasses you, this is not your profession. <laughs> Amen. Because sooner or later, you're going to do it. And I think it, it always... Even, even today, when I hear that IDEO or you know some of these other big companies have have delivered a turd, I feel better about myself. Sure. It's a little selfish, I know, but I feel like okay, so it's happening to them too. And it usually, almost always, is about constraints, whether it was a time constraint or a technology right. constraint or a platform constraint. I can't tell you how many times that um, you have a platform that gives you a theme and a set of, of widgets or modules that you just can't redo. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. you got to get it out the door. So you're cobbling it together the best way you can, and you've, you've done your best to polish that and deliver it, and your name's on it. And I, I, I've seen a lot of designers turn work like that down and say, well, I'm not going to be a part of that. I don't want my name on that. My, my position is, you know what? Do the best you can with what you have. It doesn't have to go in your portfolio. Yeah, right, right. There are, there are a lot of instances where, where the goalpost for something moves from great to done. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, that's, that, that's unavoidable. If you do this for any length of time, that's unavoidable. You're going to have situations where it can't be the best. It can be. And better is still better, right? Yeah, exactly. It, it sometimes improvement's not all what you hope it would be, but... Like you just said, I mean, you, you do your best with what you have and you let, you let it be what it is. It's not worth, that's, that's age too. I, I got to wonder if, if that's not age as well, because you and I are sitting here saying the same thing, right? You know, just do it. Don't beat yourself up about it. Move on to the next thing. You did the best you can. And sometimes that's all you can ask for. When I was 20, I don't know, all the way up until hell, all the way into my thirties, if I'm honest, I would have never accepted that. <laughs> Right. As an answer. I just I wonder if people told us that. I'm back sure then they too. did. <laughs> there was a guy, I used to work with a guy at a at one of the agencies I worked for very early on. The, the reputation I got at that place, people would say when well, someone would get upset and like lose their shit, someone would say, Hey, don't have a Natoli. Oh, funny. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That that was my reputation. I was that guy. Because I was just, and I was really passionate about everything. And design especially, it had to be like, that's just unacceptable. This is ridiculous. We can't, we have to do better than this because rah, 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 rah. And I, it came from a place of, of really loving what I do. But I was way, way, way too uh, amplified, you know, about all of it. And this guy, I remember in one of my, in one of my reviews, <laughs> said to me, look, I'm telling you this not because it affects your job performance in any way or anything like that. He said, I'm telling you as one human being to another, someone who cares about you and, and has had stress in his own life, I'm telling you this for your own good. 
you have to remember that what you're doing here is not brain surgery. Oh, right. No one's going to die as a result of a bad decision. All right? We get to do it again. We get to try again. We get to be better next time. Oh, that's so good. I mean, I, I think I think the digital part of our work gets lost, which is yes. a little ironic, right? Because even today we've seen... We've seen products evolve into services. I mean, we, we used to buy a product, and if it was crap, you were stuck with it. There's no iteration. Yeah. <laughs> right, you buy done. a product, it. and it's garbage, so you just live with it. Put some duct tape yeah. on it. But we're building products that we can improve every second of every day. And if if we're not into that journey, I think it's it makes for a really hard life. You're, you're going to have a really hard time trying to get it right the first time out. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and I'll tell you what, it kind of shocks me as someone who came from a print design background, right? Before, before computers, before designing for the web, before the web, print was a very finite nature, right? Once it's printed, that's it. You're done. And if you made a mistake and you have to reprint, <laughs> there's a whole lot of money <laughs> that's, that's lost and then being spent again. So it's very finite, right? And you get used to that idea, What's interesting to me is that as our tools and as our methods and as the ways in which we work have become a hell of a lot more flexible and iterative, and as you said, digital, it's easy to change. I think in, in a lot of ways, people's attitudes toward the nature of products, it's almost like things are more finite now than they were. The reluctance to, to tweak and change a little bit almost to me seems greater than it was back in those days, yeah. which is weird. Yeah, I used to I used to say there's no phase two. So when you're on an agile team and things start building up in the backlog and everyone's talking about phase two, I'm looking back through my history and I'm like, eh, it's pretty rare that we get into phase yeah. two. Which you know, again, we're 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 back in that old world of everything has to be right the first time, instead of putting something out that we can test and learn from. Yeah, I mean, even the word phase is problematic. Yeah. So it, it looks like as a community, we have to do some soul searching around how do we help teams think of this work as more fluid? Where do you think that sense of not urgency, that need for completeness or whatever it is that says we got to get all this right right now because it's never happening again? It's, it's false, right? We know it's false. We just talked about the fact that it's false. Where does it come from? I think there's a sense that time has been compressed and we don't have weeks, months, years to mature a product or cultivate quality over time. You know, may, maybe somebody's coming in. So if you think about that example where I had two weeks and you have to come in, you, you're not just hitting the ground running. I mean, you're hitting the ground screaming. Yeah, yeah. You have to come in and deliver right away, but you're still held accountable. You still have to make that person happy. And it's a little bit, trauma is an extreme word, but it is a little traumatic to go through something like that you come into your next gig and you're like, okay, now I have enough time to plan this out and do this well and really spend some time testing and iterating. But in the back of your mind, you've got this push and pressure that's like, but if I don't deliver up front, yeah. I'm in trouble. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I think that's accurate. It's, it's pressure and it's, it's sort of a false pressure. You know, it's just like how many cliched memes and jokes and everything else are and, and metaphors are there about it doesn't matter, you know, uh, how fast you're going if you're driving in the wrong direction, or it doesn't matter if you're first to market if your product sucks. I mean, that's right. We sort of know all these things, and 
the people who aren't us, the, the executives and product owners and even you know accountants and lawyers and everyone else involved in business tangentially knows that that's true. And yet we're, we're sort of slaves to this idea that we, for some reason as human beings, can't let go of <laughs> that, that there's a rush to do all this. And it's false. I'm, I'm really hopeful we're going to see some disruption. So I'm thinking about um, the CEO. Help me with the name if you know it, but the CEO for the company Basecamp. Oh, Jason Fried. Yeah. I love that guy. So Jason has this idea of creating a calm working culture. Yeah. And I think that's a really good start. Like you, your, your health and well-being, I mean, as, as a tool, as an instrument for design to do your work, if you're not taking care of yourself first, you're not going to deliver quality results. And self-care has a lot to do with yes. pace. Some people are designed to move really quickly in quick spurts. Other people need a more methodical, longer runway. And if you have a diverse team and you honor that, it can be amazing, right? It's rare. I've seen it, but it's rare that you everyone's in their place and you're like, okay, so we, you know, we've got people on the team that are that are bulldogs. Like they're just going to come in and tear it apart. Mm -hmm. And then we have other people who are really thoughtful and, and need to go to the woodshed and kind of work through all these details. And you put them together and you allow it to breathe. There's no question you get the best result, but you're going to make it a bigger investment up front. And I, I suppose that's the tricky bit is that everything costs something. Yes. So if you want to move that, if you want to move fast, you, you'd better start ratcheting up your risk. Because that's what it's costing you. The faster you're moving, the more risk you're taking. Yeah, I think you just hit it, actually. Okay, I think there's there's a fallacy or a wishful thinking that happens that we're going to be able to eliminate that cost. Okay, that we're going to be able to do this without paying that price, whatever it is. I, I really think that happens, and it's just not true. You know, it's just not true. You're you're going to pay one way or the other. That doesn't mean it's a bad thing. It just means that everything costs something, right? It's There's trade-offs that have to happen. This doesn't always work, but as a way to offer a little bit of, um, of a cure to that, I do think there's something to be said for small changes lead to big wins. Yes. And if you can, if you can do a little priority work, either in a workshop or working with your, your stakeholders, to say, okay, I, I, I've identified some things that are pretty low effort, high value. Let me get those out the door and, let, and so you can feel what success looks like so that you can see this stuff really works and then hopefully that'll buy me the opportunity to do some of the bigger work later. That's right. That's right. That's the only way it works. All right, I'll, I'll go into my grave preaching that. Think smaller. If you want to win big, think smaller because you have to get some traction before you can get there. And you also, to your point, what those small wins do is they calm everybody down. <laughs> you know, it, it removes a lot of that fear. When, when you, you do something small and it has impact, everyone goes, okay, all right, good. Let's, let's tackle the next thing. You know, you've, you've bought everyone some, some headspace and some calmness and some breathing room. And I, I think that's really important. I mean, to people... Individuals and teams ask me all the time, they're like, look, we got this deadline. It's not moving. We don't know what to do. There's no way we can do all this work. And I say, well, then don't. <laughs> okay. Not, not in, a, in a nasty way. It's not like you're going to go back to your, your product owners, your bosses, whoever, and say, well, we're, on, we're not doing this. These working conditions are you know, untenable or, right. or whatever it is. You're going to say, we've got this much time over the target. And we got to make some hard choices about what's going to make the most impact here. 
we feel like these four things are going to get us this outcome, which we know from all our conversations is really valuable to everyone. So that's what we're going to focus on. And that's what we're going to hit. That's what I can absolutely promise you. Anything above that is gravy. It's wonderful. If it happens, awesome. But I cannot in good faith promise you that. And that's all you have to say. So this probably touches at, this probably touches the nerve of the most difficult part of the work for me. So I'm an ENFP, which means I, I think they call us the diplomat. I kind of work best as um, a liaison or a peacekeeper, a person who's getting people together, getting people feeling good. When I have to say no, it's pretty painful. Sure. But what I've learned is that sometimes no is what success looks like. Yes. And I'm doing a disservice to you if I'm just saying yes to everything because I'm acknowledging that there's no priority. We're just going to do it all. Yeah, and then everybody's going to kill themselves one way or another, and nothing good is going to come of it anyway. That's tough. That's a tough one. Um, I'm still working on that. <laughs> it's very tough. It's, it is, Rich. It is. It, and, and I say this, you know, I, I, I get to sit here and say these things like, it's, you know, uh, these things are in, intrinsic to my personality and they come natural to me. They don't. I, I learned a lot of these things the hard way. And one of the biggest lessons, because I'm a lot like you, okay, I am, believe it or not, people will laugh when they hear this. I'm not a big fan of confrontation. Okay. I'm really not. I don't go out of my way <laughs> to have to have arguments um, with people. I hate it. It makes me terribly uncomfortable. And like you, I feel bad when I have to draw hard lines for folks. But what I learned over time from doing it the wrong way first is that when you do it in a way that's just plain spoken, when your voice stays at this level, okay, when it's open, when it's honest, when you're saying, look, I completely understand your concerns here. I get it. I'm right there with you. I'm worried about the same things. But if we're going to spend four weeks, let's make sure that, that we do the absolute best we can and minimize all these risks and dangers and all this other stuff in that four weeks so that nothing comes up and really hits us and sort of smacks us in the teeth. Yeah, that's really powerful. That's really powerful. Right? I don't want that. I don't want that. You don't want that. So let's make sure that whatever we commit to, we know we can hit. What I love about that is if you do that, even if you miss the mark, you've created an ally. You've yes. created somebody who, who's now finding it really easy to empathize with your position. Yeah. Because I'm listening to you talk, and I'm immediately there. I'm immediately thinking, wow, it's hard on this guy, too. Like, he's trying to solve my problem. Usually the design space is pretty amorphous. Yes. And poorly defined, but he's, he's in it and he's looking out for my best interest. And then if they continue to say no or be stubborn, then you kind of have to make a decision around, do I execute because I need to get paid and move on? Correct. Or do I cut my loss and move on? And that, that's really tough too. And it's one of those two things. It's definitely one of those two things, you know, and, and that's okay. In both cases, that's okay. You don't have to win. All right. <laughs> you know, yes, right. you don't, you don't, it doesn't matter. It's like, I used to tell my kids all the time, it doesn't matter who's right, okay? Being right is not a prize. And I learned that the hard way too. You know, it's not about being right. It's about what's realistic, what's possible, and what's honest. In that situation, all you're doing is expressing how you honestly feel. And that person, nine times out of 10, most people will go there with you. Even if up to that point, you've been sort of, you know, butting heads for whatever reason. Well, it helps me a lot to see uh, people like you speaking, uh, you know, whether you're at a conference or you're just posting something on LinkedIn that shows 
vulnerability and honesty around what this workspace really looks like and where the dysfunction is. I know that's not easy. And I've been on the receiving end of harsh criticism or people who you didn't intend to offend or hurt and they lash out at you and like, of course you're human. So you're still feeling that. And to, to keep, I'm a big fan of Brene Brown, you know, oh, this idea huge. of like to keep showing up and being vulnerable is your strength. And once you ease into that and learn that like, I don't feel great, I feel exposed and horrible, but I'm actually strong because experience has shown that I come out of the other end of this, you know, much more capable that's a that's an incredible discovery. And what it does is it gives permission for the rest of us to be like, yeah, I have something to say too. Yes. And it's okay if we disagree. Yes. That's part of the the joy of, of what we do. Yeah, it's it's the thing about stupid questions. You know, I, I wrote an article for UX Mastery, it was in, you know, in, in praise of stupid questions or something like that. And that comes from experience too. It's it comes from being the guy in the room who's willing to raise his hand and say, you know what? I, I kind of don't get this. <laughs> Right. right? Could you could you explain it to me? Because I'm kind of lost. I apologize. I always thank that guy. I'm always like, thank you. Well, and that's what happens, okay? There are, there are 10 other people in the room thinking the exact same thing, but they're afraid to say it. That's right. Somebody, somebody has to be first, okay? Somebody has to be first. And I eventually adopted the strategy of, well, you know what? It might as well be me. Yeah. <laughs> and coming back to that, allowing the room to guide you and being really using your empathy to hear and see what's going on. I, there was a there was a situation that was really rough where stakeholders were arguing all the way down at the button level. Oh my. And they they couldn't come out of it. They were deep deep in these weeds. And I said, "Okay, I put myself on the hook in a very uh <laughs> funny way because I wasn't sure I could do it. I just kind of felt desperate to try something different because we had been through a series of workshops. We had, you know, drawn things out and, and thought we had consensus and then we're going back and forth. There's no sh shared vocabulary. So what I did was I was like, okay, if argument is what's in the room, then that's what I'm going to use. You talk and argue and I'll draw. Mm -hmm. So what I committed to was a few of these people were remote. So we got on remote sessions once a week I was opening up Axure and sharing my screen and literally, it's crazy, I, I managed to keep up, but as they were talking, I was trying to draw it out in real time so that they could see conceptually what was going on outside of the realm of the user interface and the buttons that they were stuck on. Yeah. And I remember one of the stakeholders saying, like, she paused for a minute and she was like, you know, Rich, this is really hard <laughs> doing it this way. This is really hard. And I had the same response. I kind of laughed out loud and I said, yeah, I, I think that's the point because it's forcing us to think about stages and steps and what the user is experiencing through this flow instead of what we're designing and our opinion wars about it. Right. And there's the power of, of the visual, right? That's what you did there is is a huge, huge thing. And it's something that needs to happen in more meetings, in more conversations. Right? It's It's why I don't ever go into a meeting without drawing on a whiteboard ever, not ever. Because the minute people start talking and get wrapped up and start running circles, the minute you start visualizing some of that, it's amazing how it changes the nature of the conversation. And, you know, to, to your point and your credit, it gets them to see beyond what that minute little detail is that they're arguing about right now. Well, and part of my learning curve was 
relearning that I don't need to design it on the whiteboard. I, there's there's power in just drawing a box yeah. and letting that empty yep. space sit with people in an unsettling way and going, okay, what what are we looking at here? Let's talk through what's here. It doesn't have to be this. In fact, I, I'm thinking of another story where I worked with um, an illustrator who just had an amazing talent for drawing. I mean, he could draw comics, he could draw anything, and it was very intimidating to me. And we get in a working session together, and I can't believe what I'm watching. He's drawing like a kindergartner. And I'm like, how can you have that talent and you're drawing those simple shapes? And he just gave me this big <laughs> smile and he said, because I've learned that clients, if I draw something too nice, will not see themselves in it and will not interact with wow. me. So I started experimenting with drawing simpler shapes, and suddenly they light up. And I never forgot that. I was like, thank you for giving me permission because I'm, I don't draw that great. That's beautiful. Thank you for helping me just draw my boxes and arrows and stick people and having a conversation and realizing that this is a visual communication tool and nothing else. It's not a work of art. Yeah, what a great phrase. They won't see themselves in it. Exactly. Oh, it's so true. And later on, too, I learned that when... I think this is a gestalt principle, but when we look at something, we try to simplify it to its most basic form. Mm -hmm. So when something is really complex in, a, in line art or a line drawing, there's a lot of cognitive work. There's a lot of processing that has to go into like, what am I looking at? And what? And the, the more you define it, the less room there is for them to go, well, I actually see that persona as this because you've, you've drawn it in a really abstract way. Yeah, you don't see the differences in perception or differences in understanding, um, gaps of sorts. Yeah, I love that. I love that idea. Absolutely love it. Well, my friend, we are reaching the end of our time together. Uh, as much as, <laughs> like, just like the last time, I feel like I could... It went yeah, fast. It, it flew by, and I feel like I could probably keep going. Um, so let me ask you a few questions, a few quick sort of hot seat questions to wrap up. I know I had asked you this question before, but I can't remember what the answer was. Uh, so I'm going to ask anyway. Tell me about a talent that you have, an ability that you have that not too many people know about. Oh, sure. Um, so I started life as a musician. I went out to Musicians Institute in Los Angeles um, more years ago than I want to admit. <laughs> <clears throat> and I'm a songwriter. I still write to this day. In fact, I'm sitting in my in my house. I've kind of dedicated a room where I have some some nice monitors and equipment and I write and now I don't I don't publish a lot I, I kind of write more for myself and because I have to and it's, it's sort of my therapy but my first love is really music I think music is the true universal language mm. um, I think it's utterly magical the, the way that you can move people with you know a few chords and a, and a melody so yeah I don't know that a lot of people realize that I used to write songs and Los Angeles and kind of pursued that life for a little while. That's really cool. That's really cool. And I think the same degree of empathy revolves around musicianship as it does around, you know, things like design and UX. I think a lot of those same skills to me um, are at play. Yeah, I see a lot of us out there. It's it's good to recognize a fellow musician and be like, oh, you yeah, too. Man. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you decided you wanted to pay your bills. I get it. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> In fact, I, I really have to credit. So at at the time when I was when I was in Los Angeles, a, a lot of musicians were leaving school to work on cruise ships and things. And 
I think it was manpower. I went to some temp agency and I, I asked the person there that was working with me just like this too. What do musicians do to make money? <laughs> <laughs> and she's like, well, I think your best bet is to learn computer programming. <laughs> nice. And that kind of got me down the road to, you know, learning some basic things and it, it's a nice fit. That's very cool. So speaking of music, since we're on the topic, if you had to name one artist or, or one piece of music or an album or, or whatever, that is at the absolute top of your list, hands down, not even a question, who or what would that be? This is an awful question, Joe. I know that. That's why I ask it. <laughs> and, and, and I'm not on the receiving end of it, oh, so I, I love that. <laughs> um, probably Jeff Buckley, Grace. Ah. Yeah. I think because if I have to pick one album... It, it, it it needs a lot of variety for me. It needs a lot of textures. And um, that album, for me, it just takes you on a on a journey through a lot of really different places. And I love how deep it is. It's If you open up to it, it's a really deep record. Yeah. And I think Jeff was a very deep person. And you don't get a lot of that, especially in popular music. No, so not at all. Probably that. Um, could be something by Pink Floyd. It's tough. That's super tough. Yeah, well, I mean, that depth, that kind of depth is hard to come by um, in music in general. And there, and I think that's one of the reasons why, I, you know, when you have something that has sort of a groundswell effect, you know, like that, that record in particular resonates with a lot of people. I mean, it's gotten more critical recognition than um, a lot of things. And I think there's good reason for that. Just like when certain bands blow up and become huge, and I'm not talking about popular music. I'm talking about things that sort of stand the test of time. I think the reason for that is because there's almost always a very substantive emotional depth behind that work um, that makes it what it is. And it's it's just sort of undeniable. You know, it's either there or it isn't. For sure. Um, well, you know, I think what's important about music is it should take you to a place that nothing else can. That's its gift. Yeah. So if if you're listening, I mean... It doesn't always have to do that. There's a time for background music. There's a time for dance music. But if you're really listening to music intently, it has a power to bring you to a, a part of the this world experience that you can't get anywhere else. And that's the music that I really look for and, and get inspired by. Yeah, same. I agree. Last question, and then we will wrap this up. If you were to give yourself, your younger self one piece of advice when you were just starting out, what would it be? I don't think he would listen. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> but I would, try to, I would try to convince him, don't push the river. Don't push the river. Ease into the challenge and it'll all work out. You know, build the relationship first. Have some patience up front. I know you want to get everything done, improve yourself, but if you let things, I think gestate is the right word, if you just let things grow and evolve a little bit and, and keep with it, it will pay off. I think that's wonderful advice. And, and it couldn't be more true, in my opinion. Rich, I cannot thank you enough for your time and especially for, you know, being so gracious and agreeing to do this again. <laughs> well, that was fun. Anytime. <laughs> and uh, it's been really great talking to you and I hope to do it again sometime soon. Yeah. All right. Take care, my friend. Thanks. You too, Joe. That wraps up this edition of Making UX Work. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope that hearing these stories gives you some useful perspective, some encouragement, and I certainly hope that you remember 
that you are not alone out there. Whatever you're dealing with, someone else has been there. And just like you will, they have found a way to make it work. Before I go, I want to ask you to please check out our sponsor, Stash Studio. Once again, a streetwear clothing brand focused on quality products with a positive message, inspired by the resilience to turn a negative situation into a positive outcome. Visit stash.studio to learn more. I also want you to know that you can find links to our guests' social media profiles, websites, and other things that they have accomplished by visiting givegoodux.com slash podcast, where you will also find links to more UX resources on the web and social media, along with ways to contact me if you're interested in sharing your own story here. Until next time, this is Joe Natoli reminding you that it is people like you that make UX work. <laughs>